This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by Inside Tracker, and what makes me smile is before I even started my podcast seven years ago, when listening to other wellness conversations, Inside Tracker was always the company they recommended for comprehensive blood work. Well, now in 2024, they have begun to offer a brand new first responder panel, which will cover nine biomarkers hitting several of the pillars of health that affect us in uniform stress, heart health, metabolism, and gut health. Now, after a very simple intake form, a blood draw, you will get the results sent to your computer, smartwatch, phone, not only detailing where you are on the scale from poor to optimized, but also tips on how you can improve each of these markers. Now, this panel is usually $310, but they are also offering first responders 30% off any of their blood panels. So that brings this specific panel down to only $217. Now, I myself went through their ultimate, which is their comprehensive blood work, which also includes micronutrients, hormones, and other areas of overall health. And I have to say, I was absolutely amazed at firstly how easy it was, but secondly, the comprehensive information I got and the actionable information on how to improve each of my own biomarkers. Now, as with all my sponsors, if you want to hear more about Inside Tracker, you can hear my conversation with senior sales executive Jonathan Levitt on episode 887 of the Behind the Shield podcast. So to sign up or simply learn more, go to insidetracker.com. And for the first responder panel, the easiest way is to Google Inside Tracker first responder panel. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. 
Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show firefighter and rope rescue guru, Ryan Allen. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from training to become a firefighter in California, his move to Florida, some notable water rescues, his journey into special operations, the unique challenges the Orlando Wheel presents for the climbing team, the Central Florida Rope Rescue Challenge, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ryan Allen. Enjoy. Well, Ryan, I want to first say it's great to see you again. Obviously, you and I worked worked together in Orange County several years ago now. Um, but firstly, I just want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you very much, James, and happy to be here. Humbled to be here. So where on planet Earth are we finding you on this beautiful Florida afternoon? And I say that sarcastically as it's cold and wet outside. Uh, yeah, that would be uh, unincorporated Osceola County uh, area. So uh, uh, technically Kissimmee, I guess, but uh, unincorporated Osceola County in the Four Corners area where Osceola County, Orange County, Polk County, and uh, Lake County all kind of meet up. 
So that's where you'll find me. Well, I know that you were not born here in Florida. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline. Tell me where you were born. Tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Yeah. So uh, I was born uh, not in Florida. It was actually Huntington Beach, California, uh, a different Orange County on the other coast. So we have that coast uh, in common over in California. Um, and um, my uh, father worked. Uh, he worked in a uh, kitchen and bath showroom industry, like working on um, designing uh, fancy bathtubs and sinks and everything like that. But before he got into that, he was a surfer, really, really big surfer. Um, and uh, that's what he did. And um, so and I had a older brother, younger brother and a uh, younger sister out there in uh, Huntington Beach. And, um, we, um, all eventually, except my, my, my two brothers, we all became firefighters in Florida eventually. And, um, that came back, that comes back to, um, when we were in high school, we were a part of, uh, Explorer cadet program out there. Um, really good program. Um, unfortunately was dissolved very recently, um, uh, was Huntington Beach Search and Rescue. And it was one of the older um, explorer programs that existed out there. And what was unique about it was it was a police and fire explorer program. It did both of them. So I actually went into that program wanting to be a police officer and left wanting to be a firefighter, strangely enough. <laughs> it's so, not strange at all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Once you, once you do both jobs, you're like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that one. Um, so I, that's, that's how that started. And, um, all three of us ended up through that program at some point in our careers. And that taught me a lot about, you know, the job that I wanted to get into, um, you know, and actually doing ride alongs. I did police ride alongs. I did fire ride alongs, you know, full 24 hours in the station, riding with the guys, you know, going on calls. Uh, and that gave me a good look about that. This was the career that I wanted to do. And when I was, um, 20 years old, graduated high school. I was going uh, in college at the time, um, uh, Rancho Santiago College, Santa Ana. Did you go to Santa Ana for fire standards? No, I actually went to Orlando. I went to mid-Florida Tech, where we're going to no, be doing No, in California. The, when you were no, in California. Yeah, I didn't have to do standards. They, they actually took my Florida cert. So, oh, gotcha. Okay, but, so you traveled uh, to town. But NorthNet was where we did all our training at Anaheim, which is North a great Yeah, facility. so I was CentralNet. <laughs> Yeah, so I was at the Central Ant Training Center and uh, actually going through all the classes out there. And um, so we're talking, this is 2006-ish. So um, yeah, hard hard to get a job in California at that point. Uh, so I was putting applications everywhere. You know, I remember trying for like Burbank Airport Fire Department and all kinds of different places. And um, we used to vacation to uh, Orlando all the time. Like once a year, we would come out here. And my brother had actually just became a firefighter about like two, three years ago before that. And he told me, hey, man, you're going to be on vacation coming up. You know, why don't you put an application in for Orange County? So uh, so I did and ended up getting picked up. So I uh, ended up doing the non-cert program through there. Um, I was a California state EMT, so I had to redo and do national and go through standards, uh, the Florida way and everything. And uh, yeah, that's how I ended up out in Florida. And then my little brother followed a couple of years later and 
And uh, actually my brother-in-law uh, works for the fire department as well. So it's a whole big happy family. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to start with testing in California around that time because I got picked up by Anaheim in 2005. And I came yeah. from, so I went mid-Florida Tech, so Orlando, sir, hired by my, uh, excuse me, hired by Hialeah by Miami for almost a year. And then I got picked up by Anaheim. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, as we sit here now in 2024, we have a massive hiring crisis. I think it's really important to underline what recruitment looked like when you and I were trying to get work. So talk to me about that. How many people were going for how many spots? What were the resumes of these these young men and women that you were competing against? Oh, yeah. So I, I remember, um, I think it was Orange. It might have been Orange County Fire Authority. I can't remember which one. But I remember it was a, um, you had to pick up the application at Angel Stadium. It was just like to get it. And, I you know, it's been years now, but we're talking like, you know, in the tens of thousands of people, um, you know, I, I'd probably say it was probably about 20,000 people or something that had applied for these positions. And we're talking like a, a class of like 10 or 15 um, and just the mass of people. And it wasn't just, you know, people like right off of the street, like all the applications and, you know, hey, I, I had started when I was 15 as an explorer. I was an EMT. I was volunteering. I worked at the training center, working as like basically a uh, student intern, you know, working with the firefighters, had all this experience. And my application looked like everybody else's. Um, and so it would just get lost in the whole heap of everybody else. And, you know, um, you, it was hard to stand out. So I remember taking classes on interviews and resumes and all that in, in college on how to get a job as a firefighter. Like there was entire like multi-day classes just on the interview process, like the panel interviews and everything, just to try to get that edge. Um, and then that is, that doesn't seem to be the case now as far as a um, lot, lot more job openings than applicants, it seems now. Well, I don't want to load the question. I would certainly impart my kind of perspective after, but you and I have experienced a very similar thing. Um, I think what helped me was being English and traveling 2,500 miles for each of the interview processes. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. that at least showed, okay, this guy is a little bit committed yeah. to this. And you stood out. That's what you need to do. You need to stand out mm-hmm. in these processes. Um, what is your perspective? Why are we struggling so hard now to recruit young men and women for the fire service? Oh, man. Oof, that's a big one. Um I think it, you know, I just think it's maybe just a shift in the, in the culture a lot. Um, I don't think, you know, elementary school kids are, they're growing out of the, see the fire truck and I want to be a firefighter. They see other things and other um, ways to make a living that um, are not that, Um, you know, social media, um, you know, everybody wants to be a, YouTube star, social media star or whatever, you know, like, so they don't think, you know, that that's not maybe on the radar for a lot of people. Um, And I think just the people we're hiring are different now. You know, it's, we're, we're, the people we're hiring now are younger, which I think is good. I think we have to get them earlier in their careers, which is good. And they're not coming in with the experiences before, you know, I think when I was going through is a lot of people coming out of the military and everything. And I don't think that's as much as the, as the case now. 
So we're having to, I think, recruit younger people that are having less life experience. And we're, I think, having to teach them life experience on the job. Um, but yeah, I just think it's a different world. And, you know, they're growing out of, like I said, that, you know, I want to be a firefighter and then maybe fall into it later on. I think one of the things through my eyes, and again, obviously it's kind of a unique perspective now with all these conversations on the show and, you know, working for four different agencies, which most, you know, yeah. firefighters don't, um, is when we first applied, if you Google firefighter, it would be like you said, you know, just the kind of the, the hero stuff. And then, you know, golden nuggets on how to pass your firefighter interview and things like that. There was nothing on yeah marriages, cancer, suicide, any of those things. So I think what's happening as well, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you work for a department, 56-hour work week, no Kelly day, um, is the reality of the fire service. You know, we were blind. Earlier in my career, I never thought about seat deprivation. It, you know, the way we've always done it is was good enough for me until it wasn't anymore, until we started going to Carl's funeral, you know, young firefighters in their 20s passing away. And then all of a sudden, there's this big right-hand turn, and we got the suicide starting to really be visible now. And so now, fast forward to a young recruit, you know, 2024, and they do the same internet search that you and I did, but now these dark things come up as well. The, the hero, the rescues, all the things that we do it for also come up, but you learn about the work week, you learn about mandatory overtime and understaffing, and you know, you start seeing news stories of firefighters that did everything wrong but their organization didn't back them up and they ended up being terminated, whatever it was, those are there as well. And so I think one part of the problem is that these young people, as you said, are a lot more tech savvy. They can do their own research now. They have the whole world at their fingertips. And when they evaluate the fire service in 2024, unlike me in 2004, they get a very different picture. And they might have service burning in their heart, but they're going to go, you know, I'm going to serve in a different way. This doesn't sound like the right fit for me. I think I don't know what your perspective of that is, but I think that's a big part. We always focus on it's a new generation, but what have we done, the older fire service, to do a disservice to recruitment twenty years later? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. There is more information out there, and I I think a big part of it too is when we were starting out, we were definitely still in the shadow of you know September eleventh and everything. That was a huge, I think that was a huge component too. You know, a big rush for that. And then maybe that shadow is slowly, you know, you know, slowly passed over the years. Um, but yeah, there's, you hear all the time, you know, you, people are on their phones all the time. They're going to hear the stories about, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, um, when it comes to that and, you know, you know, people can pick their, what they want to do now. That's very open. It's not, you know, it's, you know, they're not definitely not niched into one specific thing now. So, you know, the options are out there where sometimes people feel it's like, okay, you know, you know, this is my only option to do. This is a good steady job, you know, with a good paycheck and all that. And, um, but, but yeah, I just think there's more information out there. Like you said, that's definitely probably a contributing factor for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the solution is not doom and gloom. The solution is to fix the things that are broken. You know, as I always yeah. say, we used to send children up chimneys and have them work in factories until someone said, hey, the kids are all dying. Maybe we should stop doing that. Well, that's how the fire service is. You know, when we fix yeah. it, then the problem will be solved. The other side as well, going back to your Explorer program, 
especially when it comes to the diversity conversation. You know, a lot of people, it's kind of just prior to my hire, you heard a lot of, oh, I would have been hired if it wasn't for this initiative, whatever it was. They might be correct, they might be incorrect, but that was very much the feeling. What I've seen is a lot of times there's a knee jerk, like, oh, we need to hire X amount of, of this group or that group. And when you dragnet like that, you're going to get some fantastic candidates and some shitty candidates, you know, because you're now deviating from the standards that you set before, where I think we do, you know, we do a disservice by ignoring areas where young potential candidates simply can't access fire academies, training, et cetera, because of finances, you know, family dynamics, whatever it is. So the mentorship programs, and one here in Ocala that they do, Three times a week, they meet at a centrally located fire station. As long as a child can get to the station, they get free training. Or they're given all the gear, the scholarships to fire schools. There's departments waiting to hire on the back end. So I think that is also the answer to not only the recruitment problem. And it's a beautiful thing because it also helps kids realize if they don't want to be a police officer, a firefighter, whatever it is. Brilliant. Check it off. Now at least you've taken a step. But talk to me about the importance of that exposure as a young boy yourself and and you know your perspective of mentorship in the modern day fire service yeah and i and i think i was kind of alluding to that earlier about having to get people early um when because and i think that's the new way to go for a lot of these departments is a lot of this internal um uh mentorship programs you know get them in high school say hey you know keep it on the straight and narrow path you know don't you know don't do drugs don't get in trouble uh, all of that and, you know, say, hey, this is the process because I think the days of, you know, going on your own and uh, doing fire standards on your own, uh, putting up that money and, you know, you know, most of us are probably staying at home or, uh, you know, staying with our parents and then working a, a job on the while during the fire academy. I, th- I think, you know, both th- those days might be behind where, you know, these um, intern programs and the um, Non-cert programs are definitely the way to go. Um, yeah, I, and it was just being in the firehouse. I was, you know, going on ride-alongs and being like, these are the kind of guys I want to be around. You know, very hardworking. You know, the the firemen in Huntington Beach, you know, you know, second to none. They were a great group of guys. And, you know, this 16-year-old kid showing up and, you know, interrupting your day, you know, because it was all day. And, you know, you know, the program at the time, you know, it was 20, it was a 24 hour program. And I remember showing up in the morning and my full uniform and everything and lining up my gear in front of the fire engine. And then the captain came out and did uh, inspection and stuff. And, you know, I, I just remember how cool that was. And, you know, there, there wasn't any holding any punches. Like uh, there wasn't, they weren't screening the calls that we were going to, you know? So uh, they said, if there's a call and cause the station I was at that I would go to, they had an ambulance there, they had an engine there and they had a truck company there. And they said, if it, the call goes, grab your stuff and go um, whatever unit it was, you know, there was no like, you know, Oh, it's, you know, we don't want him to see this or be worried about this. You know, it was, it was go and run the calls and, and I got a feel for it, for sure. Um, and I think a big part of it, too, that you were talking about is we are a heck of a lot busier than we were. Uh, you know, the strain on the resources is definitely there. Um, I look at the numbers and the numbers are double what I they were when I started. And I thought we were busy when I started, you know, and, th- and that's just a strain on people. And, 
you know, there has to be some relief that way, whether it's, you know, you know, change in work week, um, change in hours, more personnel, more units. And I, I'm starting to see that shift. I'm definitely starting to see that shift. I, I think the writing is on the wall. Um, everything we've, everything's been stretched so thin and now we're starting to see some of the, some of that. And I think it's starting to come back. So that is, that is hopeful. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I even heard rumblings of the 2472 finally being considered, which I've talked about for years now as, you know, being the industry standard and giving these men and women the rest and recovery. Because as we talked about when we were testing in California, not sounding arrogant because I got picked up, but ultimately, if you have that many candidates, you get to choose what you perceive are the best candidates. Now, you know, you got to make it through academy and then probation to prove that you are actually worthy of that. But, yep. um, you know, you, you, you really get to choose the best people. What I'm seeing is that, yes, they're still kind of barely able to get people in the seats, but no one is having the conversation of we are taking everyone. And how is that detrimental at the firefighter level? And then as they rise through the ranks. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, I, like I was saying, you know, we're definitely getting younger people out there and we're having to teach them life skills, you know, you know, never mowed a lawn before, never, uh, you know, started a power tool. Um, a lot of that, um, you know, here's a broom. What do you, what do I do with that? Okay. I'll show you. Um, so they they definitely are coming in younger and stuff and, you know, I wish every single candidate that came in was a, you know, former military person or somebody that came in with, um, you know, it was some sort of background, you know, it's like, Hey, I was a roofer. Oh, cool. Let's, you know, let's utilize that resource and everything. And, but now that's just doesn't seem to be the case now. Um, and then just these departments are getting bigger. Everything's a bigger, you know, the suburban, you know, uh, suburban areas are expanding, you know, more coverage, more people, more calls, you know, so they're just having to learn on the job and, you know, the guys that, you know, been around like me, gotta, gotta show them the ropes, you know, they're still coming. <laughs> now, what about the difference between West coast and East coast? I went, like I said, mid Florida tech, Orlando, um, which is beautiful. Cause I'm going to be there, you know, with you in a couple of weeks in a totally different capacity. Um, but you know, we were taught the Academy way of throwing a ladder, you know, lay it down, you know, pick it up, suitcase, carry, lay it down in front of the building, walk it, blah, blah, blah. And then I get hired in Anaheim, California with an aggressive truck company. And all of a mm. sudden they're like, you don't know how to shoulder a ladder. You don't know how to throw, you know, a 16 foot roof. And I mean, all, all these different things you're like, oh shit, my, my learning curve needs to be like a vertical line if I'm going to keep up. Um, and then you, I went back to the East coast, got hired with count with orange County, same as your department now. Um, and I remember, I won't name names, but I remember one of the first places I was at, there was a truck company there beating their chest about how badass they were. And I remember seeing them on scene going, Oh fuck. It's totally different here because a you know, professional West coast truck company is cutting roofs all the time. You know, it's, it's a, it's a very unique vehicle. We did all the extrications. Um, and, you know, on the East Coast, when you hear people, I'm talking about Southeast, it's so dangerous to put someone on the roof. We don't do vertical ventilation. And that creates a very different mindset. So did you have any kind of experiences of that when you came from originally West Coast trained to the East Coast? Yeah, for sure. The, you know, the biggest one, like you touched on, is the, the roof operations. You know, that's, you know, you could definitely say there's the two extremes. You know, there's probably, does every single 
you know, you can have the debate, does every single fire need you on the roof to cut a hole? Uh, my experience, not every single one needs to have it, but I think it's, it's a good tactic to have. And I remember just when I was, you know, training in California, the rep, the reps of roof off roof operations, you know, actually cutting on roofs, sounding roofs, that entire, um, tactic, like just like hammering down on it. Like that, if you're a truck company, like that's what you did like all the time and, you know, utilizing and getting comfortable with the saw and everything. Um, and then it just, it seemed very much like at least the Southern California area and Anaheim's definitely included in that. All the departments seemed very universal. Um, where like they all were in the same uniforms and a lot of the, they were a lot of doing the same thing. So I think if you moved from one part, let's say Huntington Beach to Miami, or I mean to Anaheim, I think it wouldn't be too much of a culture shock where maybe in the uh, Florida area, the difference between one department and another are vastly different equipment wise, everything else. Um, you know, so, and then like, you know, you go into California, like, you know, wooden ladders you know, are still a thing, you know, you, you know, you, you talk about throwing ladders and then you throw a, you know, a wooden ladder at somebody from Florida and they would be like, what the heck are you talking about? This thing is massive and heavy and, and everything else. Um, but yeah, it's different. You know, um, you know but I, one thing I would say is just that all being said, like the opportunities I've had when coming over here and the types of calls I've ran and what I've done out here in comparison, if I would have stayed out there are vastly different. Um, I don't think I would have the experience I have uh, having stayed out there as here. And, you know, one could say that, you know, that's good and bad, you know, should, sh you know, should I have been, uh, should I've run all these calls that I have, but um, you know, it's definitely, I, the opportunities are here and sometimes, you know, look back on your career and you're like, yeah, wow. Ooh, that's, that's been a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, again, there's that kind of fake machismo when it comes to the fire service. Like, you know, I'm not doing EMS. I'm, I'm a real firefighter. And what I learned when I came out East and, you know, started riding the box, I mean, which I did in Hialeah originally too, that's where you save the lives. You know, if you drag yeah, someone okay. out of a fire and they just leave them on the front lawn and you have no skills to do anything else then you just did a body recovery that was it so yeah. the the volume of trauma and the volume of patients that you run on as an emt and paramedic in you know our area i mean again that that learning curve is incredibly steep and i think that that kind of anti-ems you know sentiment is so back especially as you know the last 30 40 years we've been doing ems in the fire service so it's it's you know yeah. everyone that's mouthing off now is was groomed in a generation where this was always the norm but remove that you know that's where ultimately most lives are saved is in the back of a rescue or an ambulance i mean it's just oh, for sure. it's fact oh for sure yeah. so then walk me through so you enter orange county what was your orientation like and then where did you find yourself station wise Ah, uh, gee okay orientation uh yeah what started non-cert program so they did a um internal emt and i think it was one of the first times they had done that like an internal EMT process. Uh, and so that was rushed. Um, good for me because it was fine for me because I had done it before. Um, but I know some people probably struggled if you're coming off the streets and didn't have that experience. Um, and that le what led straight into standards. Um, I think standards are pretty much the same. I think they 
change the the big three into the big two. Uh, but it was at um, at the time this uh, Mid Florida Tech Central uh, Central Florida Fire Academy, uh, now Valencia, but at the time it was the uh, consortium. Um, yeah, standards wasn't too bad. It was it seemed like it was more preparation for the test that that big three test that that's what it seemed to be mostly. So, and the talk was for the most part, they're like, Hey, we're teaching you every, the state way you're going to go to your department. You're going to learn the department way. And, you know, that seems to be the norm because there is such a vast difference in, you know, equipment and units and everything else. So, uh, did that. I, we had a pretty big class. I think we had like 30 people in the class, uh, met some good friends, still friends today of guys I went with through that and then went through orientation. Um, I want to say orientation was about six, six weeks, maybe ish, six or eight weeks. Um, and then got to, you know, know the, the systems and, um, units that we had and, and did it. Uh, one unique part about our orientation that we were really lucky with is there was the Mercado shopping district area that was on international drive that was being torn down. And um, we had like a week there and we got to um, train there as they were tearing this entire shopping district down. So we actually got to go force like real doors, you know, in real environments, um, uh, you know, do wall breaching and do, you know, searching scenarios and, you know, writ scenarios in real buildings, you know, not, you know, the traditional fire academy rooms and everything. So I think that was a big part of that. And, um, you know, just forcing a, you know, a metal, a real metal door on a business in the back, you know, with the drop bars and everything else, like the hardest types of uh, doors you could force as a truck company and getting to practice on those was uh, pretty awesome. Um, and then after orientation, um, got assigned uh, straight off to uh, good old engine 51. <laughs> busiest uh, engine in the county absolutely it's funny when i came on in 2008 with you guys um the training had devolved and we had i think it was only four weeks and this is no disrespect to the instructors because their frustration was evident but i remember the only hose evolution we did as far as you know fire attack was taking a uh cross lay and if you remember by the, the, the training um, area where they have the 343, there's a little loading dock. There was a, yeah. a shed, a wooden garden shed, and they put a lattice like you would, you know, string tomatoes to, and you had uh -huh. to punch the lattice and then advance the, the line into the shed, but you weren't allowed to flow water. That was my, you know, fire attack training. So... I know since then it's got amazing again, but it's incredible oh, yeah. how, you know, and luckily I came from, you know, working several years already as a firefighter. So as you said, it wasn't a big deal, but mm -hmm. if someone came on that, that's their first introduction to it. You know, the, that, at that point, the bar was set very low in that class, at least. Yeah. Jamal and his team are, are doing great things over there and, you know, a bunch of respect to them because, you know, they're very busy over there. Yeah. But he's got a good program that, that he's doing over there for sure. Absolutely. Well, then walk me through your engine 51, you know, in the meat grinder, walk me through your journey into special operations and rope rescue. Yeah. So yeah, engine 51, busiest uh, engine in the county for sure. Um, always in the top 10 for the country uh, for engine companies. 
you know, and there's politics in that, like only each department's allowed to submit one, but you know, it's still, it's pretty busy. Um, so yeah, did, did the engine company for a while. Um, and then there was a sort of a, um, mandate coming down that, um, if you had a special operations unit at your station, you needed to be qualified to ride it, even if you weren't assigned to it at the time. And um, so we had a truck at station 51. So I'm like, okay, I guess I got to go be truck qualified. <laughs> so I uh, went out to um, so the central, it was still the central Florida fire Academy at the time and uh, got my uh, rope ops and rope tech uh, classes. And I had had some experience with rope back when I was in my Explorer days, but it was, um, a little bit different. It was more, I was taught by a bunch of cops how to repel. So I, I knew my knots and I knew a little bit of my systems and stuff, but it wasn't, it was more repelling based and not rescue based. Um, so then went over and so it wasn't completely foreign doing the, uh, ropes, um, at the fire Academy. And I had some, some good people over there, some good mentors that taught me rope at the uh, academy over there. And then uh, once you had that, then you had to do like an internal um, internal academy within the department to learn the trucks themselves, you know, driving, pumping, and all that. And that was only a couple of days at the time. You know, it was like a day of driving, a day of pumping, uh, you know, and all that. Um, and then came out no truck qualified. So then started uh, riding truck companies. Um, so they, I was sent down, sent down to 55 and rode 55 a lot. Cause that was a, uh, one of our quints and they had a, at the time, all of our, most of our units were three men and 55 was one of the only four man units. So they always needed an extra guy down there. So for the first <clears throat> about year and a half, I was truck qualified. I spent a lot of time down over there, sending me over to 55. Um, and then um, came back, uh, started riding the engine again. Once uh, all the engines went four man again, you know, living good life over at 51. And um, I think it's probably been about, yeah, probably about seven years. Um, an opening came up on truck 51 on uh, C shift. I was on B shift at the time and, um, kind of by chance I got it. I didn't intentionally put in for it. I just each transfer cycle, I would just put in for the truck A, B and C. And, um, the guy who was on the truck at the time, the senior guy, uh, was transferring out and then my name was on the top. And so then I just, uh, moved from one side of the bay to the other and then uh, been there ever since <laughs> on the truck company. Um, and then, so rode the truck a bunch on uh, C shift and st still doing that now. And then probably 2017, maybe 2017, I, I just had an inkling. I wanted to do more. Um, I was always the type of person on calls. If there was, like a special operations call if there was like hey you're not allowed to go into that trench because you're not a trench rescue person or yeah or you're not a confined space person i didn't like to hear that so i was like well let me go start taking the rest of these classes 
So then I went out and just started taking all my USAR classes, trench, confined space, VMR, VMR, where we reconnected. I remember yep. that yep. over at, uh, at the um, State Academy. That was cool seeing you there. It had been a while. They had indeed. That was a great, the great teachers there too. Yeah. Great group of guys are there. I took my, my yeah, my VMR and then my uh, structural collapse out there as well. I had a very diverse group of certs from all different places. And I think that did me well. Um, uh, getting different perspectives of places. And uh, once I had all my classes, then uh, I went through uh, our internal squad uh, academy, which is definitely um, definitely challenging. You have to take a test to start out to even be accepted into the academy. So you spend all this time taking the classes, and then you had to take a written test, and you had to be in the top. I think they took eight of us, top eight guys to move to the practical portion and the practical portion was six weeks, six weeks, Monday through Friday, working on all the disciplines saying, you know, and the same kind of thing you learned in the Academy a certain way, we're teaching you the, our, our department's way. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of, a lot of training on that, you know, I think two weeks of that six weeks was just in hazmat. So just to get into perspective, um, and then you had to do a test out process. So you had to take the written test again, but it was different questions and you had to do better. Um, and then there was, I think it was like probably like 18 practical skills that you had to do. Um, like everything from in the entire process was like a proctor, like reading you a question, like a, a scenario. So there'd be a car on its side and they'd be like, you know, candidate, you have 10 minutes to, use the equipment in front of you to properly strut uh, this vehicle you know, and then go. And then you'd have to go and do it. And if you didn't have your, if you forgot your safety glasses or something, that would be an automatic fail or you weren't wearing your gloves or something like that. And so about, I think there was about 18 of those practical skills uh, and they crossed all the disciplines and then you were qualified at that point. So then I started writing squads and, uh, and doing all that. So so yeah, that's where I'm at doing uh, special operations for sure. If you, and which squad are you assigned to now then? No, still on the truck, still okay. on my truck. Um, but then I, I get floated there. Depends on the time of year. If it's a time of year, there's a lot of vacation. They'll uh, pop me over to them. So I'll go to, I go to all of them, all three of them. So Who was yeah. behind the high level of standards? Because that sounds like an intense you know, testing process. And I remember mm -hmm. uh, Haskett and some of the names that seem to be kind of, you know, the movers and the shakers and that. Who, do do yeah. you know who was responsible for maybe arguably sometimes standards being lower in other areas, holding it very high in that discipline? Um, I think it's evolved over the, over the time period. Um, I will say my experience in the, being a part of all the programs um, and then we'll probably talk about those in a minute. All, all the programs I'm in in special operations, what it takes is a very dedicated group of lower ranking individuals, firefighters, engineers, lieutenants that are very passionate and willing to do the work and then presenting that to the management and being like, hey, this is what we want to do. And then giving them the, the free reign to do that. And that's where things like um, the squad, the squad academy, the current versions of the truck academy, uh, the dive academy, 
and then the rescue climbers, which is one I'm heavily involved in, uh, where that happens. So I think it happens at that lower level and then manage management listens to those individuals. Um, because we, there's been a lot of rotations of people in, you know, whoever's in charge of things always changes, but there seems to be that core group of people that stick around, um, that are the movers and shakers and try to be like, Hey, you know, let's try to be the best at this job. Um, you know, so there's always seems to be like, yeah, like a Lieutenant level person who is very passionate about something and kind of pushes those programs to, to be as good as they are. I was only at the county five years, but the really significant change that I witnessed, um, and I know this is a program that prior to me ever getting there, there were already people really trying to push this. It was just kind of dead in the water. But when I went there, I got signed 73, which almost killed me. It was so damn quiet at the time because they, uh, <laughs> they were only the engine. There wasn't a rescue, so 70 was doing all the, all the heavy lifting. Um, Ended up at 70, which I loved, and I spent you know mm -hmm. my whole career there. Um, it was. But we had a boat. You know, We had the mm -hmm. lake next to us. And I came from you know a, a pretty significant lifeguarding background, open water, all that stuff. And when we kind of started seeing what we were responsible for and the crew that I was with trained, like John would take us down all the time and we'd you know, practice back in the boat in and you know, doing um, evolutions. And then Wayne Dorman and his brother would come and they actually brought actual lifeguarding mannequins and we did you know, backboarding. It was amazing. But you remove that crew out of the equation for a second, talk about standards. There was no certification. Anyone could be floated in that maybe couldn't even swim, no matter drive a boat or you know rescue someone from a lake. Um, and then even the backboards, they had the backboards that were used in dry land. Well, that doesn't work in the water. You know? mm. So I remember thinking, how is there such a disconnect? You know, We have um, brush truck certifications, but not boats. Um, and then Chief Droves got hired and I remember at 50 actually talking to him about this, you know, and one of, like I said, I'm one of many voices. There were pioneers prior to me already trying to put this in place, but that was what was beautiful is that he came in and he listened. And then the, the, the rescue diver program started building up, you know, and you had the, the surface water and then you had the divers. And now, I mean, I, I was talking to Wayne just about three days ago. And he was yep. saying, you guys have like one or two rescues a month in the county now, whether they're successful or not. But you have that mm -hmm. many cars with occupants in the water these days. So I applaud, I applaud that because, I mean, again, there was a lot of people that were told no in that journey. But getting a good leader in accompanied by all these people on, the, as you said, the lower levels pushing for this, how many lives does that save now? Oh, yeah, that's that's for sure. Um yeah, Wayne is Wayne was definitely one of the originals, um, and then uh, Rock, Rocky, Rocky and his father were uh, the the two rocks, and um, and uh, Tyson, and then my brother who's in charge of it now. Um, they yeah, they took a lot of what other people were already pushing and started yeah with that surface water program, the and then the the uh, rescue swimmer program, and that it was just kind of little steps little steps that, you know, has now led into the dive, the dive program. And now one of the biggest dive programs in the state and, and also the country, you know? Um, and yeah, there are, there's, I know there's a hundred percent, at least one person alive because of that, the dive program. Um, I think, yeah, we should probably get a uh, captain on 
you should get captain on here and have him tell that story of the the kid on St. Patrick's Day. But I, I know that kid uh, that went into that retention pond on St. Patrick's Day right after it was like, I think it was within not too long of the program being put in the field. Uh, that kid is alive today because of the dive program, for sure. Because you arrived and you had a captain who arrived who was a diver. He didn't have his dive equipment on, but he knew what to do. Jumped into the water early marked the car for the diver when the diver arrived all he had to do was swim down to the marker and pull that kid out and you know the fact that that you know you have a successful drowning like that is is amazing and i know for sure that that kid is alive because of that program you know having had my own experiences with water calls and stuff there the clock is for sure ticking unless you're down the street and on the road you know the time is against you for sure when it comes to that but yeah. Well, speaking of that, when I Googled you, I mean, obviously, you know, we know each other, but I always want to kind of dive in a little bit. An EMT award popped up on the the search and correct me if I'm wrong, that was a water rescue. So tell me about that call. That that was a water rescue. That was um, pr- just prior, a uh, few years prior to the uh, dive academy, the, the dive program reinstarting, uh, re- reinstated. Um, let's see, that was early morning, right, right before shift change, um, that, uh, a car with three people, um, went off the road right next to a school and into, uh, a retention pond. Like if you can imagine a small bridge going to a retention pond, they kind of veered off to the right and then crashed through a fence and then flipped upside down and went into the retention pond. Um, I th- you know, so we responded to that. It's not too far down the street from the station. So it was really quick. Um, and we arrived, I was on the engine at the time, I uh, had a probie with me and, uh, myself and the probe, myself, the probie and, uh, um, a sheriff's deputy, uh, went in the car was upside down and basically just the, um, tires were showing. And, um, I originally went over to the driver's side to try to open it, but the door was jammed into the muck and couldn't get it open. And then they were just opening up the passenger side and pulled out the first person who was there. And in the pro, so then I came around and in the process of pulling out the first person, I'm, we're hearing um, my Lieutenant of the time, Steve Sherrill on the radio. And he's like, Hey, kind of giving us updates. And he's like, Hey, there's somebody in the car on the phone talking like on the phone with 911. And, took out the first individual who was unconscious. And I was like, well, it's obviously not this guy. He's not talking on the phone. So there's obviously more people in the car. And um, in that process, um, the person who was in the back seat grabbed the hand. I think it was the deputy's hand, just reached out and grabbed his hand and scared scared the crap out of him. (laughs) (laughs) And then we managed to pull her out. And then uh, talking to her, uh, just trying to get information, like, is there anybody else in the car? And then she's, we were able to manage um, to determine that there was a third person in the car. And at this point, you know, it was deep into the car. And the only way in was at the time, this the passenger door. So I went in under the water and uh, there was sort of an air pocket area where the, um, where your feet would be uh, in a, in the front seat of a car and kind of, uh, uh, managed to get a breath of air in there and then was able to reach around and find a seatbelt and a uh, seatbelt was able to take off and pull the driver out. And, um, 
with the assistance of everybody else, get them up on shore. Cause even just getting them up on shore was difficult. Cause it was like rocks, like large boulder rocks leading down to the retention pond and then proceeded to work uh, two codes at the same time um, with us and the rescue. And then me and the probe soaking wet, you know, no shoes on and everything else. And then, and then what, what then this cavalry started coming, but uh, it was a very, it felt like a very long, like two, three minutes that we were up on the shore alone and kind of splitting, splitting uh, all the, the equipment we had between all of us uh, were working that, that call. And then, and then ended up riding in on one of them still soaked to the bone, no, <laughs> no shoes on riding in the back of the rescue. Um, and then, so we, Got pulses back uh, on the one. I, he eventually passed uh, later on, like a few weeks later. Uh, the other one, the the other one was called at the hospital, and then the other lady was um, the other lady was ended up being fine, which is pretty crazy that that happened. You know, and uh, there was a lot of a um, lot of. Uh, uh, media that came along with that and uh, ended up getting uh, EMT of the year uh, for the state of Florida through the Department of Health that year. And so it was a, it was a crazy call. Went very quickly, you know, a lot, you know, so. It's amazing though. I'm glad I asked that question because you left out the whole part where you and your crew had an amazing rescue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that lady was fine, you know. Brilliant. Well, I want to get to, you know, the the uh, very unique rope rescue team that you're a part of. But just before we yeah. do, I mean, obviously, there's been the, the op tempo, as they like to say in the military, when it comes to Orange County is extremely high. I mean, we have so many crazy calls. Um, what are some of the other career calls that you've had up to this point, excluding the the wheel? Oh, jeez. Um, most of them are are just the small ones like you know the you know, like the amount of different types of house fires and stuff in unique areas apartment fires you know just the amount of those or the unfortunate you know violent calls and stuff like that that you know you encounter uh, unfortunately on too regular of a basis but you know um, oh here's there's one of my favorite ones uh pirate ship dinner or pirate dinner adventure on international drive which i used to be a pirate in that stunt show you were a pirate in that stunt uh -huh. there you go i was benjamin blue i always got the girl the ben okay yeah <laughs> uh that was a crazy call um we responded to that um it was at the time i think it, if you can picture um if people know medieval times or think dolly parton has one of those shows too one of those dinner shows uh where there's like a show and then they bring out food to you uh during it and this particular one is pirate themed and it's an amphitheater and it actually has a has a cloth cover or a, i mean a canvas cover over it well the canvas cover was damaged in one of our hurricanes so the place was shut down uh so they had just replaced the canvas cover and um they were doing repairs inside and the repairman, unfortunately, I think he was doing some hot work, caught 
some of the decorative uh, rock on fire. Because if you think this decorative rock is basically foam gasoline for the most part, and he caught one of those on fire. And I give props to the guy because when, later on when I went in there, I found like six empty fire extinguishers. So he tried to put this out, poor guy. Um, and then the place went up. <clears throat> and um, we arrived there as the first truck company. I think I had just transferred over to the truck. Um, and, you know, big old hole in the ceiling of this canvas uh, amphitheater. And uh, the pirate ship was on fire. And myself and my lieutenant at the time, uh, Ducks, um, went in and had to do primary search on this giant building. You know, so you got to think it's an amphitheater, backstage area, um, pre-show area, and then like a kitchen. You know, you're familiar with that. Mm, it was and amazing. Luckily I was fam- yeah, I, luckily I was familiar with the building. I, I had known people that had been in that show and I had been there before. So I had a general idea at the time of what the layout was. And we had basically searched everywhere except the main building. And I was kind of able to convey to my Lieutenant kind of the, what we were going to expect when we went in there. And it has sort of a double door, uh, like almost an airlock with the way you get into that place. So there was like no smoke anywhere except because of this, the way the double doors were. And we went in there and sure enough, like, you know, we're talking pitch black, which is this glow in the center of the, the um, pirate dinner show on fire with a pirate ship on fire. And I, we're like, all right. He's like, my lieutenant's like, all right, you go left. I go right. And we'll meet back up here in the middle. And luckily nobody else, nobody was in there. Um, uh, but I remember later on when we looked back, um, the moat that's around the boat was drained and we saw some of the areas people were walking in were very close to falling into this 15 foot pool. So, uh, that was definitely a unique experience. Not every day you show up and there's a pirate ship on fire. And then just knowing these unique buildings that are in your area, if you're working in like near these heavy, uh, heavy touristy areas, you're going to have these strange buildings like, you know, you know, the Ripley's building that's on its side or the, you know, Wonderworks building that's upside down, these unique structures that are out there, you know, that aren't your normal, you know, two, three bedroom house, you know. You know, it was interesting when I came back to America from Japan and I went to the fire academy and then I got hired. Well, was it before? I guess it was when I came back to Orlando. Anyway, um, they they were hiring for Medieval Times. Dolly Parton's was a Dixie Stampede, which didn't last very long in Florida. I think it shut down pretty early. And there was a pirate show. Well, I had sword training and you know stunt work and stuff, and I'd, I could ride. So I went to Medieval Times, but they have a program where no matter who you are, you start as a squire. You just shovel shit yeah. and you work your way up. And I'm like, I, I respect that, but that's not going to work. You know, I ain't got time <laughs> to do that. Dixie Stampede, my my ex, my wife at the time, she auditioned. I was literally there just to watch, and they were hurting for male riders, so they asked me if I'd ride. And again, I'm not a great rider by any means. I just can ride. I grew up on a farm, and uh, I got the job, and she didn't. But, you know, running around on an ostrich carrying an American flag, again, wasn't really the stunt work that I wanted. So that's yeah. how I ended up in in the pirate show because I, I tried for all three, but that was the one. And it was, I mean, the the actual show is dangerous. Like you said, the you know, the moat and everything. We would do mm-hmm. the high, not high fall, a fall. It's not really called a high fall, 18 feet 
into a mat that looked like a postage stamp when you were up there, like 30 foot sword fight up on a mast. And it was a great place to learn to be a stuntman. But man, those people in there, they get paid way too little for what they do because it's literally yeah. 90 minutes of solid stunts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Two sometimes two, sh- two, three shows a day. Yeah, that's a uh, that's that's a hard life. Yeah, sure. I do remember when it burnt though, and I remember going, "Huh." Yeah. <laughs> it, need, it needed a renovation anyway, so it's probably a blessing. Yeah, that was, I, it was good just to know. And I, it, it, I got to tell this story to this day. My my people I work with laugh at me for this. We went out, and then. Um, we, there's different uh, divisions set up. So the, the battalion chief that was in charge of that side of the building we were working on was working on a um, one of those giant wooden spools that holds wire, like using that as a table, like as the construction guys were using. So that was kind of his command post. And um, I just remember I was coming out and, you know, I was on the radio and I was bonking because a million people were talking about things that were unnecessary. So I walk out to give a, you know, just a report of what we did. And the, the way they describe it is, right, you took your hand and then you pushed off all the junk that was on this wooden spool. And then you pulled out of your pocket a magic marker that nobody had knew you had and proceeded, I proceeded to draw a map of the building and show them, hey, this is what it looks like. This is the fire. And then this pirate ship is on fire. And the guys still make fun of me to this day. You're like, you just pulled out a marker and started drawing a picture for the, the <laughs> it was a pirate map. It was a treasure map, in fact. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, I touched on it before. Just up the road yep. from the pirate show is the mm-hmm. Orlando Eye. Is that what they call it? Uh, I think it's the Icon now. I think it's okay. Icon currently. The wheel, the wheel at Icon Park. The wheel at Icon Park. The current name. <laughs> yeah. Because in Orlando, I mean, sorry, in, in London, it was a Millennium Wheel originally, and it became yes. the London Eye. I know that. The so, four hundred feet. Have I got that right? Tall. Four hundred feet. Correct. So, educate me. They they say to you know Orlando, Orange County. Hey, we're going to be building this very large Ferris wheel. Walk me through the inception mm-hmm. of the team. You know the the testing. I think is very important, and the fitness yeah. standards for the team. And then let's go into some of the rescues. Yeah. And everybody's going to be surprised. I went through this. Most of this podcast, I hadn't talked about rope yet. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get a long podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, 20, about just before 2015, because 2015 was when they built it. Um, they wanted to build uh, this giant 400 foot Ferris wheel on International Drive. Um, and it was the team that owned the London Eye at the time that were kind of uh, a part of it. So, <clears throat> so that was coming. And then, with that came the unique rescue challenge that that would be um because even your ferris wheel at at like a fair or something you can get with a ladder truck and all that but now you have a 400 foot wheel and london has their own rescue team on standby um for that as well so with that so they were decided they were they were going to build this wheel and then they contacted the fire department and wanted to make a rescue team uh, so instead of going like the private rescue team route, they're like, hey, we'll just have the local fire department do it. And we'll bring in people from London to teach the firefighters how to do the rescue. Well, the difference is every single one of these giant Ferris wheels is built differently. There's not a it's, a, you know, it, everyone is custom. The one that is in Florida is different than the one that is in um, Las Vegas and is different than the one that is in London and everything else. So everyone has its own unique challenges. So 
what we found was that it would be a unique challenge and you needed a certain type of person to do rescues on this because you need somebody who can basically carry 50 pounds of gear, climb up 400 feet, crawl into a hole that is 18 inches, an 18 inch uh, opening on the top of one of these things uh, with all that gear, proceed to evacuate, you know, five, six people climb out of that hole, climb to the next one and do it again and potentially do that multiple times. And so with that comes some, you know, stamina and some knowledge to be working, working independently because most likely you're just you and your partner or you and two other people. So they wanted to develop, to develop a unique team that could focus on um, the unique challenge that this ride would present. So, They had a testing process for that uh, that involved initially um, the ladder mill. And if people aren't familiar with the ladder mill, if you've been to your gym, like a Jacob's ladder, imagine a Jacob's ladder straight up and down or a uh, treadmill, but instead of replace the belt with a bunch of rungs of a ladder. So it's just an endless ladder that you climb. So you had to climb this for, you had to climb 400 feet on the ladder mill in under 10 minutes. And then after that, do some uh, rope rescue like skills, and then uh, had to climb the uh, our Bronto truck. That is a unique shape to it. Was the testing process at the time? Uh, that since that has since developed into more, um, where it's the ladder mill, and now there's multiple different skill stations you have to go to. Uh, we have a, a knot tying section, um, a pickoff section, a um, like a system section. Um, and then, you know, you have to demonstrate your ability to know those rope systems. Uh, what happened when they did all of this was they brought down the people from London to teach us. And they basically looked at the way Amer- uh, North Americans at the time do rope rescue and saying, you guys are in the stone age. Um, and they proceeded to show us equipment and techniques that, vastly improved uh the way we do things so what would take going from you know a system to pull somebody up and then changing that system to lower somebody down would take five minutes to change from one system to the other where this equipment we have now and that they introduced us then can do it within five seconds and that introduced us to just a whole new way of doing doing things and that you could take what was normally multiple fire trucks uh, showing up to a call, pulling out giant bags of equipment, and would reduce that to you carrying all the equipment on you it was a unique change for sure. And reducing that team from like 15, 20 people to multiple small little teams of, of individuals working. And with that, reintroduced me to rope rescue and my passion for rope rescue and has led to all kinds of things that I do now. (laughs) Just jumping on that topic for a second. One of the most nauseating things that you can hear from American firefighter is the ridiculing of the European fire helmet Mm. when we're wearing, and I see over my shoulder there, you got a patent of, uh, the, the leather helmet and it's from the mm. 1930s 1930s yeah. and you know I've 
all for artifacts. I'm all for history. That's why we have museums. But when it comes to being progressive, you know, finding the best innovation, just like you said, if it's truly for them, you want the best equipment. I, f- I find it nauseating when someone will not only push against, but even ridicule innovation that's far better. You know, in those those helmets, they've got comms, they've got visors, they've got all the things built in. They're incredible. And they're light and they're low profile. Um, bearing in mind, I wore West Coast helmets, I wore East Coast helmets, I had all the helmets. Um, talk to me about that knowledge sharing, because I think there's a lot of ignorance, borderline narcissism sometimes in the American fire service and, you know, more concerned about looking like Kurt Russell than actually being the best version. And I always say, you don't see Navy SEALs wearing 10 helmets for a reason. And if you're Mm. so, you know, stuck on tradition, why are you wearing a BA? Go do it old school, you know, good luck with that. So I think it's a very important point, the humility to listen to an agency that arguably is just doing it better than you in that specific area, you know, how, how was that information delivered and what, how was it received in the team? Because I think sometimes ego gets in the way of progress in our profession. Yeah. Um, so, so at least what they were showing us was just so beyond what we were doing. And it was just kind of like a, this exists, like it, at least as far as the rope part of it was, um, you know, they sent down three really good guys. And um, what's funny is I've reconnected with some of them over the years through different different avenues. And uh, I still talk to them this, to this day and they make fun of us. They're like, we showed up and you guys are using bar racks and all this other stuff. And um, they, it was just so beyond what we were doing that there wasn't really much pushback, at least from us as an internal team from the, the, the rescue climbers. Now, taking that information what we were doing, it definitely took time for us to transfer that information, let's say, to the rest of the department. That cell was a was a lot harder uh, for sure. But I think, at least as far as the rope goes, um, sometimes you just have to show people, and you know, sometimes just demonstrating it and doing it side by side against the old way and the new way, and then, you know. Even if they don't like it, you know, even the the staunchest critics will kind of shrug their shoulders a little bit and go, okay, maybe this isn't so bad. And it's, you know, little bits. If you want to make a change in your agency with something, it has, you, you have to do it slowly because it's not going to be an overnight thing for sure. It's, you know, you, you have to little bits of information at a time and, and then make it not just so you know, so drastic of a change. Um, but you know, that you're, you know, way Europe and other parts of the world do fire services very different than the U S like a lot of them are, you know, military or branches of the military. I know in my experience of guys in France and stuff, it's basically military guys that are doing it. So that's a completely different, uh, mindset and, they're telling you we do it this way because this is the military and this is how we do it. So there's no like, you know, well, I'd like to wear this helmet. I like to wear that. It's like, no, this is, this is the way it's done here. And just that, that mindset is very different uh, culturally all over with that. I think that military influence, a lot of the fire departments in, in Europe and all that. But, um, but yeah, it's it, at the time. Yeah. Like it was so drastically different than what we were doing that it, it kind of blew our minds. And the only pushback that I ended up seeing was when it tried to expand beyond our smaller team that we had at the time. 
Yeah. Well, I think the the difference is, like you said, you you had seen it work. There was no ego. There was no. You just yeah. oh, this is better. And don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. There's you know that's not saying it's a one way street. There's a lot of things that we do that I know over the years many departments around the world have taken. You know, but that's the thing: oh, yeah. the humility to knowledge share. You know, the rising tide lifts all ships. But if you are dogmatic about the way you look rather than your ability to perform, that then, in my opinion, becomes a problem. Oh, for sure. For sure. So before we go to, you know, your advancement in the rope rescue side, what about the actual rescues? Talk to me about, you know, if there's any that stick in mind, because you're 400 feet up, you've talked about, you know, ascending, you know, with gear mm -hmm. on your back, because obviously the fitness side is, you know, is, yeah. is clear, but now you're crawling through 18 inch, you know, spaces. How are you getting the, the riders from these places back safely down to the floor? Oh yeah. Uh, so that goes a lot into, um, uh, look, we, the best way you can deal with a lot of these unique structures is pre-planning. So all the gear to rescue a lot of these, in, the, these, these people is already in the cab. They just don't know what it's sitting on top. So you have to climb, you know, all the way to that individual cab, cr crawl in, introduce yourself to these people that are going to be scared. <laughs> and, um, and then proceed to tell them to go to the back of the uh, to the back of the uh, cabin and open up the doors and uh, use the ropes that we have to uh, build a system to uh, get them down. Um, and with that came smaller ropes than what we were used to at the time in the fire department, switching from half inch rope to uh, eleven millimeter. So, which doesn't seem a lot, but you know, when you have to carry that rope, potentially, you know, there's a big weight difference in that. Um, so yeah, it, and then pre-planning the, each one of these rides on how to get people down, um, the system that we built, if people aren't familiar with it, it's sort of, you know, basically like a controlled zip line, you know, there's kind of a tracking line, um, and then a way to lower people down and then you reset it and then send the next person down. And you have to have a system that works for all types of people, everything from a small child to a, you know, to a service dog. You know, you could potentially be rescuing um, on these rides. Uh, we are really good as a fire department rescuing, um, you know, a 175 pound uh, male person because, you know, that's what you practice on. You, you know, you're not going to get the biggest person or the, you know, to rescue. So we're really good at practicing that, but we're not really good at rescuing children or service dogs or, you know, um, uh, different size people for sure. So that's the unique challenge that uh, these theme parks and everything give us. So are you, are they literally going from the cabin that they were in all the way to the ground? All the way to the ground. Well, to the roof of the building, uh, of the building. So almost all the way to the ground, but yeah, to, to the roof of the, the building that they, the uh, attraction building. So we have anchors pre-staged on there. So, and then from there, there's a, that's a two-story building, so it's a few stairs on the way down. So yeah. So these people getting in have no idea that they might be doing a 360-foot <laughs> external rappel. Yes, no idea. <laughs> no idea. Yeah, that's and, crazy. That's the whole part of it too is um, is being able to you know do all that, and then if you're physically fit to do that, you're not going to pop in like sweating bullets. And, you know, breathing super heavy, you know, like if you can come in and you come in calm and collected, people are going to trust what you're doing more, you know, 
And that was the whole part of our program about implementing the physical fitness standard and everything was we need you to do the climb. But then once you're there, that's when the work starts. You know, the climb is just getting there. You need to be able to perform, you know, perform the rescue and then exude confidence. And we have to be able to trust because, you know, there's not a safety captain climbing with you. They have to trust what you're building is correct, you know, and you have to be able to to do that and have the stamina and not have like, you know, lose that dexterity in your hands because you've been climbing so much. So you know, that was the big push in why we specifically have a team just for this kind of stuff. In my last place where I worked next to my station was a 28 story hotel. And the mentality of quite a lot of the department was, Oh, if we have something, we'll just take the elevator. Um, <laughs> there was a guy who came in briefly, sadly <clears throat> passed away not long after, but he set up high rise training in a two story building. And I remember asking him just a quick question. How are we simulating the exertion of getting a hundred pounds of gear to the fire floor before we even start working? And he said, Oh, we'll just walk around the building a couple of times first. And, you know, internally I facepalmed, I wasn't disrespectful, but, um, this is the big disconnect too. Um, you know, the, the physical fitness and you talk about dexterity, I mean, also just the, the clarity of thought to be able to put mm -hmm. the system together and not make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a, a fatal mistake is a huge part. So it's really interesting to hear in, in the, uh, the wheel example that really mirrors high rise and everything else. And shortly after I left that place, they had an incident where the elevators roll out and they had to climb. I don't think it was 28. It was a different, different hotel, but it was, you know, I think 15 floors with all their gear. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so then when you look at the absence of fitness standards in the fire service as a whole, yeah, you might be fine making entry on a single story, you know, 1950s house or running a medical aid. But what happens when you have that fire in the Bank of America building or, you know, some oh, yeah. cat you know, catastrophic event in the Millennium Wheel, um, you know, where you actually maybe you're not assigned to the team, but you yourself have to get up there, too, because they need all hands. You know, that's mm -hmm. what we should be training for. Oh, yeah. You know, adrenaline and, you know, rise, you know, adrenaline will only take you so far. And you know, they always say you'll rise to the level of your training and stuff. But if you haven't trained to that level, then how are you expected to rise to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, you touched on the passion for ropes. So you first exposed to it, the truck program, you get on the squad program. Now you're on the, uh, the climb team. How did that continue to evolve to, you know, becoming uh, the, the core of your passion? And we'll obviously then talk about the event. Yeah. Um, it was slow. Like I, I, I originally, when I was introduced it as a, an explorer, as a cadet in California, I really liked it. And then it, you know, kind of, went to the wayside until I got involved in the truck program and stuff. And, uh, that evolved into rope access training. Uh, everybody on our team is eventually set to sent to rope access training. Um, and is certified with SPRAT, the society of professional rope access technicians. It's not a fire department course. It's not a rescue course. It's actually an industry course for people that, um, you know, if you wanted to hang lights in the middle of the, Gaylord Palms, you know, if you wanted a Christmas tree hanging in the middle of that ampl that, that uh, atrium at Gaylord Palms, you would have rope access te technicians do that. So I, we were sent there and I was part of the first class that did that. And what was unique about that program is it is not a pay money and get a cert program. You, it's a five-day course, 
four days you're trained and on the fifth day you're tested and you're not tested by the people you're trained you're that trained you you are tested by an outside evaluator that has flown in that has nothing to do with the agency that you that you uh that just tested you so you're trained in all these different rope climbing techniques so basically you know how to climb rope how to go rescue people move uh horizontally you know laterally through rope and then you're taught about like yeah 15 different skills and then you have to perform those in front of this evaluator and basically it's um it's you know it's base it's baseball it's three strikes and you're out and then sometimes if it's a really bad offense they'll just cut you right there and it's like hey sorry i know you paid $1,500 for this class, but you can come back, you know? So it's, you, you feel like when you come out of that class that you actually earned your certification. And I have hence continued with that program and progressed through the different levels, uh, to uh, level three of that. And so I just started getting involved in ropes. Um, and I got involved with, uh, some guys out of Canada that I work with the guys wrote a rescue out of Canada that teach advanced, um, rope rescue classes. And then they got me involved or kind of showed me, uh, rope competitions, rope competitions exist and they're all over the place. Um, there's currently, I, uh, there's one in the, the U S there's one in South America. There's a big one in Europe every year. And then there's China and Japan. Um, and so I started getting involved in those and I put together a rope competition team in 2021 to go to California and compete against, uh, 11 other teams on the USS Iowa. I think it is in LA Harbor over there for a two day rope rescue competition against teams from all over the U S and all over the world. And that was an awesome experience and it was all on a battleship. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then since I've been involved in other ones and, uh, about last year, March of last year, I was actually in Japan and, uh, competed with uh, my friends out of Canada in, uh, the competition in Japan. And we were the only North American team and I was the only person in the competition from the U S. So it was mostly, um, mostly teams from uh, Japan and, and Asia up there. So, which is crazy. And we're not talking just, you know, Hey, the patients there, go get them. We're talking, um, you know, our, hour and a half scenarios to uh, get some of these people out and only five people to do it. So very cool and unique thing to do. And you carry all your equipment with you. You have to carry everything with you. So you can bring whatever you want. You just have to be able to carry it on your back. What did you notice about the difference with the Asian teams versus you? When I think of Japanese firefighters and rope, and obviously this isn't what we're talking about. This is kind of more the militant drill training, but the incredible uh, speed that they do the you know the rescue harness and some of these things in there. What I would imagine is probably their their academy. But it seems you know I know I lived in Japan for fifteen months. They are very and I and I say this you know, compassionately, they're very obedient. They are, you know, they don't really question authority as, as a culture. There's a kind of respect for hierarchy there. So, and then you've got, you know, a very high level of respect too. What did you notice, um, yeah, a contrast or any differences between the kind of uh, the Western side and the Asian side? Mm -hmm. 
there so the jap the japanese teams um are amazing they they take it to a regimented level on how to do things um it is the way they can climb rope and at the speed they can climb rope is amazing um they their concept of rope rescue is very young for the most part at least knowing this stuff but they have taken over the past like you know five years you know something that wasn't a big deal and created an entire culture in japan just around rope rescue and they've taken it so they literally went around and saw what everybody else was doing and took all the good parts and created their own thing which is amazing um there's a if you want to watch it there's a youtube video uh we had a, a videographer follow us in japan and there's a youtube video it's a ronin rescue um look up Rona rescue on YouTube and it will, it'll be under a uh, grimp Japan grimp G R I M P Japan. And it's a two part, um, two part documentary. So it's about like each episode is like 45 minutes and you can see there, like we do a test. We do like a, a practice run with the guys cause they invited us down to a uh, train with one of the other teams there. And so we did a little side by side, uh, competition against each other for practice and they smoked us completely <laughs> smoked us it was almost embarrassing it was actually kind of embarrassing but you know it, it it's amazing and they were they were all very cordial to us and you know opened up opened up their training facilities for us to train in and then even helped us out getting some equipment because traveling across the country or across the world uh to do some of these competitions you're talking each person's carrying about 50 pounds of gear and then each person has, you know, 300 feet of rope plus a stretcher and, and everything else. It gets kind of costly to do it. So if you can have some local support of where you're going for some of these comps, it makes all the difference in the world. So they're very, very cool guys. Um, and they've even competed. Their top teams over there have competed in uh, Europe. The, the main competition is a grimp over in uh, Belgium that they do every year. And... Um, I think one of their Japanese teams two years ago, you know, won it straight out. It was very, very, very good, very, very good and well-deserved for sure. Well, that underlines what we're talking about before, you know, having the humility to go. And I think this applies to the fire service, to the country. I mean, everything, you know, you're doing this really well, you know, teach me about this thing, you know, whether it's, I talk about this a lot, Norway's prisons, Finland's education system, the NHS in the UK, when it was originally planned and still funded well, <laughs> the actual principle, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's all these systems that do work really well. If they're, like I said, if they're supported properly. And having the humility to say, you know what, you know, for example, healthcare in America, we're doing something wrong. 70% of our country is obese or overweight. You know, our prescription drugs are, you know, insanely expensive. People are dying of cancer and losing their house, you know, all these things like we need to make a fix here, you know, which country is great at this and having the humility and the the community to interact humbly with each other in these other countries, whether it's a fire department or a nation and knowledge share, then, as I said, everyone benefits, everyone. Okay, well, let me teach you about this. So while you're here, Japan, you don't seem to have gangs murdering each other on every corner of your street. Talk to me about your culture. What are you doing right that we're missing there? You know what I mean? So I think that's the that's what we need to do. You know, we've got politicians beating their chest saying we're the greatest country in the world, but our statistics don't back that up. We are a beautiful nation full of incredible people. 
But there are also other beautiful nations full of incredible people around the world that we can share knowledge with and have the humility to learn from and everyone would benefit. And that would also, just like you with the teams that you've interacted, improve relationships with other nations and maybe down the road even prevent some of these conflicts. Oh, yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's, you know, you know, what, what little we do in the, in the rope world, but you think the, the, the Belgium competition, you know, you have the UK team, uh, those, uh, intervent, the intervention out of the UK, they're another great team, really good group of guys over there. And so you have like at that competition, you have, you know, a team from Wyoming, which ended up winning Michael Rush, those guys, you know, against, you know, the best in the UK, the best in Japan, um, you know, France, you know, you've got the, the Belgium fire brigade, all these different departments coming in one spot, you know, in, in Belgium to compete for a week in rope rescue comp. And, you know, it's, it's amazing, you know, the connections that you can make and the friends that I've made in, in doing all this stuff is, is really cool that, you can, and then some of those guys on the UK team were the guys was one of the guys who came down and taught us rope rescue stuff back in 2015. And I saw him at a competition. I'm like, like we, we, I know you. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I came down to Florida and then sure enough, you know, hanging out and, and meet each other in California after, you know, you know, six years. So it's funny how that works out. Amazing. Well, you touched on the fact that a lot of people just can't afford to send teams full of, you know, climbers with all their gear. So talk to me about the creation of the Central Florida Rope Rescue Challenge. Yeah. So after we did in uh, 20, uh, in 21, when we competed in, um, in Los Angeles, we had a good, we had an awesome time and we had a lot of support from uh, different people to get us there. And I've always been one when I do something like that, if I go to a class or sent to a convention or something like that, I want to bring something back. So I met with the team, you know, we all talked to each other kind of on the way home and we're like, how do we do this? Is there, is there a world where we could do a version of this for, you know, teams that wouldn't be able to do this? You know, because you end up, you have to send, you have five people plus an evaluator plus a victim. You have to bring your own victim for these two. So you guys send seven people across the country. So we talked and it was myself, uh, Chris Ramey, um, Jeff Hansen, Donnie Krantz, Evan Peck, uh, and then the uh, the Ronins. Um, and so we thought, hey, let's see if we can do a version of this in Central Florida for the local fire departments. And uh, it was sort of a pipe dream, um, but uh, we met with the uh, the fire academy. So currently, the Valencia, the fire people at Valencia, and we kind of told them what we wanted to do, and they said yes, kind of right off the bat. They're like, as long as we do it on a day that doesn't interfere with their normal operations. <clears throat> so basically, it had to be a weekend, and they said, yeah, we'll we'll do it, and we'll help you guys out with advertising and everything else, and. We're like, okay, they said yes. So then we had to figure out a way to uh, to do this and get sponsorship and create from scratch, utilizing the facility we had, an event that would be worth having. So um, we did it our first time last year. We did uh, we had eight teams. Uh, it's a one-day event. We have uh, five events. And um, we had basically teams from all over Central Florida come together 
and um, we had a team from uh, South Florida that was our winners last year. And uh, we had our friends over at Reedy Creek who got second place and the city of Orlando got third place last year. And um, we got a lot of good feedback from our first time doing it. And uh, we're, we were discussing uh, this year about doing it again. And we were thinking, oh, should we take a year off? You know, it was a lot of work. And then um, I had a conversation with Chris and it came down to, hey, it, the first one was successful. And if we don't do it this year, we'll probably never do it again. You know, because the momentum was there. So we put it back together and now we have 10 teams this year. And uh, we have a, a bunch of them are newcomer teams as well that have never done it before. And they'll show up. They they have no basically pre knowledge of the uh, scenarios that they're given. Um, they're given out a bunch. They're sent them a bunch of rules about like uh, how to do things safely and per the rules that we set up for the competition. But they're going to show up in five person teams and uh, going to compete head to head against another team uh, during five different scenarios, and we'll see who comes out on top. Um. And a big part about when we were setting this up was we obviously wanted to bring the event to Central Florida, but we wanted to, you know, also have it mean something, you know, have, give back as well. So each year we pick a charity where all the the money that is collected from the teams goes to a specific charity. So um, everybody that goes as volunteers. Um, we take a little bit of the money to pay for like the food and the t-shirts and everything. And then the rest goes to our charity. Last year we had the, um, UCF restores, uh, which is the, uh, PTSD, um, center over at UCF, the help first responders. And then we had uh, give kids the world, which is the, uh, it's a make a wish resort for, uh, kids with, um, the make a wish foundation that want to come and visit the theme parks. And then this year we wanted to put it all into one charity so we could give a bigger check. So this year we're going to do just give kids the world to give them the, uh, the check. So, and then next year we'll see about uh, maybe, you know, somewhere else, but yeah, it's a great event. And then we're going to have a new master of ceremonies uh, yourself <laughs> coming <laughs> to join and uh, you know, trying to make this a thing. So it's going to be exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited. I really am. I mean, firstly having been a, you know, recruit you know a, a wannabe firefighter one day in that same place i mean i've been there for the orlando fire academy and you know being on there not as a as a young firefighter anymore but that's going to be kind of a cool you know circle round to now being part of this incredible competition that you've put together and i think also props to reedy creek i mean they've they've done really well in you mentioned the the, the ladder mill well um rick's fire sled equipment you know he puts on a challenge every year and i think reedy creek have won it like one or two years in a row, you're saying that their high angle team is, is excellent as well. So kudos to anyone, whether they do or don't get support from their department, still taking upon themselves to chase excellence. I think that's admirable. Yeah. And, you know, competition can bring out, you know, can bring out the best in people because especially the first year, you know, people were very apprehensive about doing this because, you know, you think internally, you, you know, you might be good, but you're going out there and I have respect for any team that does one of these competitions, you know, no matter how you do, because you're putting it on the line, you know, you're going out there and saying, I'm going to put my skills to the test for everybody to, to see. And 
this is a very small world. You know, there's, it's not like most sports that have all this, you know, infrastructure to look at and everything. There's no real book on how to do all this stuff. You just have to be like, okay, I'm confident in my team's ability to do this and let's see how we do, you know, and can come out going, Hey, I saw what these guys did. They did this. This was a lot faster. And then the biggest change I see is, is seeing that filter out what we were doing into all of these departments. We're now most of the departments in the central Florida area are using the smaller diameter 11 mil rope um, and a lot of the equipment and ideas that we have implemented in my department and in the, in the companies I teach with, I'm now seeing a lot of that in the area and it is expanded outward. And that's kind of what we wanted to do. And to, to have that, to be a part of that's pretty cool. And, you know, I, I love, you know, we got some teams that not from the central Florida area coming this year. And, and I think that's awesome. And that's what I want. And, you know, if this grows and we have people from out of state one year, that would be really cool too. So one more area I want to hit before we go to some closing questions, because it's important because I'm, I'm seeing, you know, the, the, uh, the fire Academy of mine right now. Mm-hmm. What I have observed in some places that I've worked, um, Anaheim was phenomenal at training. We trained constantly. As you said, if you're going to be on a truck company in, in California, you're constantly cutting roofs. You're constantly, you know, brushing up on building construction. You're doing, you know, fire surveys and all the things to make sure that you are being as safe as possible and you're you're effective on a roof and you get off the roof straight away. So therefore you do make it a safe operation or as safe as you can. Conversely, there are areas where there's box checking. You do an evolution once, you know, for your annual training in a fire department. All right, you did it. You're good. You know, off you go. And a lot of times maybe with zero realism as well. You know, you go search a completely empty burn room with a bale of hay in the corner and then you go. Talk to me about the courage of being willing to fail on a training ground, because I would imagine there's a lot of apprehension in some of these new teams and they're overcoming a fear of looking stupid. Doesn't mean they're going to look mm-hmm. stupid, but we always have that, a little mind like, oh, everyone's going to know you're actually a bit shit. I have that very strong in my mind. But you show up anyway because there's no better place than the draw ground to make mistakes, even if you do correct them, learn, get the reps in. And then when you're out in the real world where someone's life is in the balance, hopefully you'll actually execute properly. So what have you seen as far as fear, fear of looking stupid, getting in the way of people actually getting better as firefighters? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that takes that's a lot. And that's a hard uh, hurdle for a lot of people to get past about looking that it is okay to fail in training. Um, and then there was, there has been, I've seen a lot of apprehension about doing it and that is okay. Nobody's going to make fun of you. Nobody's going to like it. If I'm involved in it, it's not going to be that way. It's, I want people to learn. And, um, you know, that documentary I told you about the, the bus going to Japan, you're going to see a screw up. You are going to see a screw up. You're going to see in that, you know, it doesn't always go well, you know, especially you put pressure on people to do stuff, you know, it's, you know, they, they kicked our butts and that's okay. But I can, I can tell somebody who's gonna, you know, potentially, you know, say like, well, you know, why did you go if you ended up not, you know, placing or anything like that? It's like, I got to go to Japan and hang out with, you know, all these wonderful people from all over the world. And I put it on the line out there and it just, just because, you know, you know, we didn't place or whatever, you know, 
anybody who has the, you know, courage to participate in one of these competitions and put it out there, even if they don't do well, is going to, is going to be successful in a real operation. You know, like the, the type of rescues that are being asked to do in some of these competitions that are supposed to be done within an hour or an hour and a half are like multi-hour rescues in, in the real world. And the fact that you can limit now down to you only the equipment you carry and you only have five people, you know, that if you can work under those conditions and under that pressure and do it, it's going to change the way when you go back to do real rescues, you're going to be like, Oh, this a training evolution doesn't need to take three hours. We can do this. This is easy. You know, train for the really hard stuff. And then when you show up for the easy stuff, you're just like, ah, oh, we got this, you know? Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail in competition. It's okay to fail in training. I, you know, rather have people do it there than in the real world and see it on the news. Um, yeah. Like I said, you watch the documentary, you'll, you'll see us screw up a bunch and it's awesome. <laughs> I have no problem putting it out there. Yeah, no, I think, but that, I think you learn more from failures. I used to do martial arts yeah. for years and I would train much harder after a loss than a win because when you win, you oh, yeah. kind of, you have that voice going, oh, okay, you're good. You're, you're not good, good but you know, fine. you yeah. keep going. So if you have, you have a, a few bad days. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to, you know, I like the way of being tested too, because yeah, now you change the way you do this. Now you have the humility to listen to some of the instructors or other students that are in um, and you see things differently. And actually when we did VMR, that was my second VMR class um, when I was at the Creek and the guy that I went to, to get, you know, the, the, the permission, cause I think it was the, you know, the education incentive I was using. He's like, well, why do you want to do this again? You've already done it. I'm like, therein lies the problem because I yeah. did it three, four years ago. I want to be proficient on the tool and no other place, you know, can you get a week's worth of tool time in an, you know, in a department, you might get, you know, five minutes on a tool and then you've got to hand it off to the next person. So, and yeah. I want to keep screwing up and I want to, cause I can't remember how to do a clamshell. It's been three years. Yeah. I don't have that kind of brain. So I think it is, you know, a beautiful place to fail. And if someone's laughing, then you just take them out the back, give them a smack in the head and then bring them back again, <laughs> because exactly. you shouldn't be laughing at people that have shown up willing to fail. You know, I don't care if it's in a gym and they're showing up and they're out of shape, but they're in a gym or if they're trying to, you know, remember how to tie a bowl. And if you're there showing up, you are doing the right thing, whatever level you're at. Yeah. And every time like we, something like this happens or internally as a department, if you're doing some kind of like um, testing coming up or something, there's suddenly an increase in training and everybody starts doing it, you know, and everybody starts practicing, you know, Oh, we're doing rope assessments in the truck program again. All of a sudden there's ropes hanging in the bay and everybody's practicing again. And that's, that's, that's what it is. You know, it, I want to fo focus away from, you know, it's like, I want you to come in with the knowledge, like if, you know, if we have to teach you how to tie knots and we'll teach you how to tie knots, but that doesn't need to be the focus. I need you to see the bigger picture of this. This is just, you know, the idea of you being able to tie a certain knot is whether or not you know how to uncouple a hose or something. It's, you know, putting it all together to fight that fire or to put the, to do that rescue is what we want to see. And we saw some amazing things last year from, you know, departments that are not involved in the way I am in competition and stuff, because you put a time limit on people and restrictions and they, they will rise to that. 
they will, you know, we're like, oh, well, I guess we have to make them a little bit harder next year because they're doing <laughs> so good. So, and they will be harder. Brilliant. All right. Well, the first of the closing questions, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our conversation today or completely unrelated. Mm, books. Um, I like it. Probably somebody's probably mentioned it on here, but there's a, I think it's 6,000 or 3,000 degrees about the Wooster uh, cold storage fire. Somebody recommended that one. That's, that's a very good book about that uh, fire that they had in Massachusetts. I think it was 99 or something fire department related, really good story, you know, and then people know it usually from the story about the battalion chief um, who blocked the doorway from other people going into that fire. Cause they ended up losing, I think six guys, if I remember correctly. And he basically stood with his arms in front of the door and said, nobody's going in. And you know, the, the way the, you know, the cojones it would take to say something like that, because it's crazy, but that's a, for any, you know, if somebody listened to podcasts like that, it's a great book to read. I think it's 6,000 or 3,000. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. What about film? You mentioned a documentary, obviously, about your your Japan competition, but what about other films and documentaries? Um, there is... I think there's, there's that one... Um, I think it's called Brotherhood about... Um, uh, FDNY post nine 11. Um, I think it focused a lot on their special operations, uh, companies and then them rebuilding. And it was like only a, like a year or so out of, um, after nine 11 and like a lot of guys were having being put in roles and having to step up and changes about a crazy incident that they had out there. And, uh, I think that's a good one to, to watch and for sure that's kind of related to what we're doing. I just had Mickey Farrell on the show, FDNY truck. I think he's lieutenant. Um, and he was literally in the academy either side of 9-11. So they ended up wow. working the pile. And so he's now assigned to a firehouse, you know, basically like the replacement in the World War II, mm -hmm. you know, unit. You know what I mean? And it was such a raw, unique perspective to come because, you know, he's was going to be a wide-eyed rookie going to go there and have the senior man you know mentor him and all this stuff and now the firehouse is full of you know broken grieving men and women um yeah. you know so hearing what it was like day one to be immediately after 9-11 was extremely powerful and you really kind of got an insight into not just obviously the 343 and the funerals but like all that knowledge is gone and where did these young recruits mm -hmm. even start to learn again so it was really powerful oh, yeah under those conditions. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well then speaking of great people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, I think you should get captain Troy Broadway on, on here from the, uh, he had that rescue. He was part of that rescue. Um, and maybe the guy, some of the, <laughs> the guys that were involved in that dive rescue call, I think that would be a good one to have on here. And then um, could probably uh, my friend uh, Mark Pfeiffer from Canada. He's got his own little podcast that does rope rescue stuff. And I do a lot of what I do and have a lot to thank of that man who is who does nothing but uh, freely give information about all the about what he does. And he he t was the first he took the first team the North American team to Europe in uh, for rescue competitions for GRIMP. Uh, 
and brought and went over there and had a lot of the same experiences. You know, they're like, oh, well, these guys are doing things a lot better and has since brought a lot of that back to North America and has been like an advocate for that and freely gives out information. Anybody who does rope competitions, you know, contacts him and, you know, he goes, yeah, this is what you need to do. He's very open with his information and, and has like podcasts on stuff that he's done and competitions and he goes over it and, and all that. But yeah, I can talk to him. Mark Pfeiffer, good guy. Let's make it happen. Both of those. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and obviously the competition, what do you do to yeah. decompress? What do I do to decompress? Um, I, ooh, I love the beach. I love the beach if it's just me. Um, I live really close to the theme parks. So I sometimes will just take my daughter or my son and we'll just walk around a theme park for a while and be outside and, you know, um, and then, uh, I listen to a lot of, uh, audio books and podcasts and stuff and go on my runs over here in the central Florida area. I got a couple of running paths over near the attractions and, uh, I like to run in the evening when the fireworks are going off. There's some good running paths over here. So yeah, that's me. Just be with my family and you know, the beach is nice and all that. We started in Huntington beach when I was there, they just officially named themselves, uh, was it surf city USA? I think surf it was, oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was to the contention of some other areas. Um, but, uh, it's funny where I live now, horse, uh, Ocala calls themselves horse capsule of the world, but I don't know if yeah. the rest of the world agrees, but anyway, um, <laughs> do you still surf now? Now you're on the East coast. I, ha I, I do not as much as I would like. I probably only get out there a few times a year. Um, it's just a little bit more of a drive than it used to be, uh, before we're talking, uh, my high school was a block from the beach. So, <laughs> so it was definitely a lot easier. So now it's more of an ordeal and, uh, getting the kids out and all that. So, but I try still, got, still got my boards if I ever need to dust them off. So maybe as my kids get older, I'll get back into it a little bit more, but wish I would do it more. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the competition. Then, firstly, where can people find that? I know that it's free to to come and watch. And then, yep. you know, to tell me if someone's interested for planning for next year, how can they actually send a team? Yep. So it's going to be March second. Um, I would say get there about seven a.m. and it's at the Valencia College Fire Rescue Institute on two nine six six West Oak Ridge Road, Orlando, Florida three two eight zero nine, and. Um, I would say, yeah, it's free to come out and watch. Um, if you want information about it, you can follow me on uh, Instagram, uh, rope underscore rescue underscore guy on Instagram. And that's where I post all the stuff. And um, usually coming up, probably it's usually we start thinking about it in like fall is when we start kind of planning it for the upcoming. So we give plenty of advance notice. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll get all that info. And, um, yeah, it should be a really good time. Come out and see. It's, it's fun. We got a relay, our rope relay. It's probably the, the big draw for people to watch. Um, and, yeah, we're going to have food out there. It's going to be a really good time. And the rope relay is two teams at a time, head-to-head? Head-to-head, doing a un currently undisclosed uh, uh, set of skills going through. So that's really cool to, to watch them go head-to-head -head like that. And that's kind of how the whole competition has worked out. Each scenario 
has its mirror. So two teams do the same scenario at the same time. Uh, it helps us get through the day faster. Um, but you also, so you have a kind of a ticking clock next to you. So we have to figure out scenarios that kind of mirror each other. So it's limiting on what we can do and we have to be a little creative with that, but we're able to get more teams by doing it that way. Um, and, but uh, I do find it fun to do it right next to another team. Cause that's how they did it in, um, when I was in uh, LA, we had a, we went head to head against another team and that does amplify your stress levels. And I think it brings out the better in you. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, I want to say thank you so much. It's so funny that we're having this conversation now. I mean, you know, I think you were hired a couple of years before I got to, to Orange County. And I remember being at 51 a lot. So obviously that's where we passed and shift change normally. And then, you know, fast forward a few years, we're doing VMR together. And now here we are, you know, about to be part of your amazing event in a couple of weeks. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the show today. Oh, no. Thank you, James. Thank you. And I think at VMR, I think you were just starting out this podcast. I think it was brand new. I think you were handing out cards and saying, hey, I'm doing this thing. (laughs) I still do that. (laughs) Yeah. Good for you, man. Good for you and everything you've been doing and, you know, being an advocate for first responders and everything. Well-respected. So glad you're going to be a part of this. I'm looking forward to it, man.